Company on Pilot's Plane Tales. Check-in Confessions Part 1. The Good. Over their careers, airline pilots and doctors come to that will have stayed in a myriad of lodgings during their overnight stays, and the vast majority will have merged into a conglomeration of memories. But every now and then, one or two will stand out from the rest. In this little tale, the crew have kindly shared some of their experiences, starting with the good. The bad and the ugly will follow on next week, so be sure to tune in. I took it upon myself to dive in, so to speak. Despite the odd, awful dive over the years, Hong Kong did give us several upmarket layover spots. One was the Five Star Langham Place Hotel, the address of which was 555 Shanghai Street. Now named the Cordis Hong Kong, this delightfully posh hotel had four or five stylish restaurants and bars to choose from that ran from an alfresco terrace with twinkling lights, iPad menus and big sofas to the place with its high ceilings, waterfalls and tropical plants. The rooms were spacious and beautifully appointed, with heated mirrors that didn't mist up, a bath that massaged your back through water jets and a vast bed that was so soft and covered with fine Egyptian cotton of such quality that it felt like I was sleeping in a cloud. When we checked in, we had a private area not far from the drop-off point where we were treated to cool face towels and glasses of champagne or fruit juices. I sometimes wondered if that was to keep us away from their normal quality guests as we were usually a bit crumpled and smelt of armpits after a 20-hour day. The hotel was joined to a huge upmarket shopping mall, where it was easy to waste time if the weather was hot or during the rainy season, when being outside could feel unbearable. This mall was one of the first vertical malls in Hong Kong, where space is at a premium, and it rises over 15 floors. It has a nine-storey glass atrium which lets in natural light and huge express escalators that rise up four floors each, allowing visitors to travel to the 12th floor 250 feet up in no time at all. The mall spirals around the upper escalators, and on the ceiling computerised images are projected which are programmed to coordinate with the mall lighting. Back in 1988, when it was built, it was part of an urban development program that cost 10 billion Hong Kong dollars, but sadly it destroyed some old favourite areas of Kowloon, such as Hong Lok Street, otherwise known as Bird Street, where devotees of their songbirds would meet and show off their beautiful singing pets. A new Bird Street was created in an area further east, known as the Yuan Po Street Bird Garden. Scattered around the hotel's many vaulted public areas, covered in cool marble, were amazing works of art, mainly Chinese, and sometimes it felt like being in a fabulous museum. 
Indeed, the hotel's collection had more than 1,500 pieces of contemporary Chinese art, including pieces by celebrated artists. Right on the top of the Mongkok Mass Transit Railway Station, a stunningly efficient underground rail system, it was easy to get around, but right next door to the hotel was the famous Nathan Road, full of shopping emporiums that would rival Oxford Street in London or New York's Fifth Avenue any day. The perfect experience was to head out to Kuang Wa Street for lunch at the nearby Tim Ho Wan Dim Sum restaurant, nestled away in the back streets of Mong Kok. This tiny, 20-seat, nondescript establishment was easily found from the queues of people trying to get into what was the cheapest Michelin-starred restaurant in the world. Started by Chef Mac and Chef Leung, who both came from brilliant three-starred restaurants, their new venture was soon noticed, and they were quickly awarded their first Michelin star in this tiny dim-sum eatery. I gather that now there are Tim Ho Wan restaurants which actually means, add good luck, around the world and at least two in New York on 4th and 9th Avenues. After a light lunch of barbecued pork buns, vermicelli rolls stuffed with shrimp and pan-fried water chestnut cake, we would shop around Nathan Road or in the Langham Mall and then head back for a few drinks in the Portal Bar followed by an evening meal in the hotel's Ming Court a beautiful three-starred Michelin Cantonese restaurant numbered amongst the best in Hong Kong and where airline crews get a discount. You try getting 20% off at any other Michelin-starred restaurant in the world and see how far you get. Jeff has been trying to recall his favourite and least favourite layover hotels. The two that came most readily to his mind were not necessarily the most extravagant nor the most disgusting, but a couple of most unusual settings. Although he didn't refer to his hotel stays in the US Air Force Military Airlift Command as layovers, he called them crew rests, he still feels that he must submit his first hotel as the most interesting and exotic. He was flying a C-141B Starlifter mission in the Pacific in 1984, and he recalls that the plan was to leave Hickam Air Force Base in Honolulu for Royal Australian Air Force Base, Richmond, near Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. A planned stop for refueling in Pango Pango, American Samoa, was included. The details are a bit fuzzy in his mind now, but for some reason, after landing in Pango Pango, they didn't continue on their mission until the next day, and they needed lodgings for an overnight stay. He remembers being in awe when he saw the rather large American Samoan gentleman get out of a tiny taxi, wearing only sandals and a brightly coloured traditional Polynesian sarong when they were picked up at the airport. They were driven out to the only hotel on the island, which was operated by the government, the Rainmaker Hotel. It opened in 1965 and in its heyday in the 60s and 70s was referred to as the Pacific's Intercontinental Hotel. 
He could tell that when it was at its peak, it must have been truly extravagant, especially in this setting on a tropical lagoon. He couldn't help wonder if Walt Disney and company had used this place as a model for the Polynesian Resort Hotel in Disney World. The main dining area and reception was opulent, large chandeliers hanging from high ceilings with an adjoining bar lounge that was equally stylish. The entire place was erected on stilts to protect it from damage by water and waves and stabilise it in the sandy soil. He doesn't recall the hotel room being any other than a standard hotel fare, but it was lovely and comfortable. He supposed the reason this hotel came to mind when asked about his favourite lay of a hotel was because of its unique architecture and its ability to send his mind's eye back in time to a different era. Sadly, the Rainmaker Hotel was in its decline when he had the fortune to stay in her, and was demolished in 2015 after sitting deserted for over a decade. Rick also had an exotic location in mind. He told me that it was rare, particularly for a new hire first officer on the long-haul fleet, to end up on the opposite side of the world on a 10-day whirlwind east-to-west trek from Santiago to Easter Island and on to Tahiti. Initial operating experience trips were never flown to the coveted Tahitian paradise. These were almost exclusively trips to Sao Paulo, Buenos Aires, Montevideo, Miami and Los Angeles. But with the Director of Operations, who was also a line check airman and Chief Evaluator, in need of some actual flying, his wife in need of some sun and Mai Tais, and yours truly in need of some instruction, the stars aligned just perfectly, and he found himself in the right seat of a 767 over the calypso blue waters of the South Pacific Ocean. From the onset of the trip, it was clear to him that his commanding officer's mind was squarely set on the company-paid vacation they were about to embark on, and upon reaching the top of descent point, an air of anticipation and glee filled the flight deck. As to why would become abundantly clear just a short while later. The parking brake was set and the shutdown checklist completed. The purser asked over the interphone if she was cleared to open the main doors to disembark, to which the captain answered in the positive. This particular airport didn't, or at least at the time, do jet bridges, so when the main cabin doors swung open, the humidity characteristic of those latitudes and the sweet smell of the ocean breeze quickly filled the cabin as passengers happily stepped down the air stairs to the tarmac below. Neatly nestled on the northeast side of Tahiti's Punawia district, right on the Vaitupa Bay, and with a direct line of sight to Far International Airport's Runway 4, sat the Intercontinental Tahiti Resort. 
As the crew transfer pulled into the main entrance, tiki torches everywhere, a smell of tropical flowers and upbeat Polynesian tones filled the air. The grandiose yet rustic lobby looked like something out of a James Michener book, and the staff seemed genuinely happy to see us. Welcome drinks and Polynesian lays were handed to everyone, and upon making sure each member of the crew was squared away, the skipper made his way to his villa with his betrothed. Or at least that's how it seemed, and he never saw him or his wife until the end of their three-day stay. Post-flight or instruction briefing be damned, but can you blame him? The rooms were meticulously decorated in Polynesian motif, and the signature restaurants, the Air, and the lagoon-side Le Lotus, with their vast selection of French and Polynesian cuisines, made for quite the unique yet pricey outing. White sands, clear crystal waters, and a steady supply of tropical cocktails made it absolutely impossible for our young pilot to focus on his studies at all which in all honesty did worry him a bit, as he was, after all, flying with the guy in charge of the whole thing. The dreaded day to finally check out arrived, and unsurprisingly, every single member of the cabin and flight crew, sporting a golden brown tan, seemed thoroughly disappointed to leave and fly back east to reality. As for my concerns of showing up unprepared for my return flight to San Diego via Easter Island, I quickly realised they were unfounded, as the skipper, while sporting a halfway crooked smile, asserted, you don't come to a place like this and expect anything besides a tan and a hangover. Well said, Rick. What a lovely experience. Steph said that as far as hotel experiences go, more so than the rest of the crew since she travels for work infrequently, she's generally the party responsible for picking where she spends her evenings away from home, on vacation or for conferences. As such, she can recall far more good hotel experiences than horrible ones. The one that truly stands out though and that she would highly recommend to anyone listening is the old Veston House on the Leeward Island of Montserrat in the Caribbean. Music lovers may know that in the late 1970s and early 1980s, Beatles producer Sir George Martin opened Air Montserrat, a sister studio to the Air Studios in central London, and hosted some of the biggest names in rock and pop to record their albums there. Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits, Synchronicity by The Police, and Too Low for Zero by Elton John are just some of the classics recorded during the decade of the studio's existence. Alveston House was owned by George Martin, and it also served as a temporary home for many of the visiting musicians who came to record at Air Studios. Sadly, the studio was irreparably damaged during Hurricane Hugo in 1989, but George Martin continued to visit the island regularly, staying at the Old Veston House during the holidays and at other times of the year. 
tourism to the island then declined significantly after the Sufria Hills volcano erupted between 1995 and 2000, destroying the capital city of Plymouth. Olveston House was thankfully outside of the zone of destruction from the volcano and today is operated as a guest house. I booked it for a family vacation in 2015 and we were not disappointed. The house is filled with Beatles and Air Studios memorabilia, including original black and white photographs by Linda McCartney in the hallways and gold records in each of the rooms. The property is green and lush, with a constant breeze from the sea, as you'd expect in the Caribbean. The on-site restaurant and bar is one of the best eating establishments on the island. Hopefully one day... I'll have the chance to go back and visit. Olveston House is truly an unhurried respite from the rest of the world and charming in every possible way. I love that we have finished this APG travel log on such a great note. But gird your loins, dear listener, for the other side of the coin in next week's tale. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. And if you don't know what that is, well, hop over immediately to airlinepilotguy.com and listen to the whole thing. Plane Tales is also its own little podcast, and if you enjoy it and would like to see it continue, then how about leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Bye now.